China, and we did have an, an occasion in which the president at that time was was uh, coming to Colombia, and I got to see a lot of the preparation that went into this, and and the security. You know, if the president were to be coming to Crawfordsville, preparations would start weeks in advance, with the Secret Service sending an advanced team to make sure that things were commute, were were safe, and and the commute was was right. The Air Force One would land at Indy and, and all traffic would be stopped even on the interstates between, in both directions, mind you, between here and the airport. Manhole covers would have been welded shut. Snipers might even be placed on rooftops. Depending on your feelings about our president, you may or may not appreciate all these inconveniences. Jesus shows himself to be so much more than what we might expect right from the start of Matthew's gospel. As we look at chapters 3 through 4 of the kingship and the kingdom of God that Jesus came and, and inaugurated with his life and his death and his resurrection. But Jesus is coming the way that was made for him, as we look at this in terms of make way for the king, it was unusual. I mean, think about it. He was introduced, as we'll see this morning, by a social outcast. He experiences starvation and temptation of the worst kind right off the bat. And rather than heading to Jerusalem to take his throne and to meet with all the cool kids, he heads off to the boonies to make disciples of rabbi rejects, to be his closest followers. We made way for the king in the way that he desired, in the way that God had designed, but it was not the way that we would have designed it at all. So this morning we meet Jesus' hype man, John the Baptist. As we read, uh, continuing in Matthew chapter 3. In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. This is what he was preaching. For this is he who was spoken of by the prophet, speaking of, of John the Baptist. This is he who is spoken of by the prophet Isaiah when he said, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord. Make his paths straight. When it says, The time came. This is like, uh, or, or in those days, this is like saying, Okay, so eventually the time came. Or once upon a time. Uh, Matthew, in his biographical writing about Jesus skips over basically ages 2 to 4 until somewhere around Jesus' early 30s. And he does so because he's not writing about the life of Jesus. He's writing about the ministry of Jesus. This is the days that began Jesus' ministry on the earth and we're introduced to the last of the Old Testament prophets, 
John the Baptist. In many ways, his ministry is kind of like an overlap of, of the Old Covenant, Old Testament prophets with the New Testament and the coming of the Messiah that was being proclaimed by them. So we look at John the Baptist, and his message is distilled down to one statement, and it really in many ways is the theme of the book of Matthew. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand, or the kingdom of God. And we'll get more into this message in a bit here, this, this message of John the Baptist. But before you go on and start thinking that John is just a party pooper, understand that this was Jesus' message as well. We'll read in Matthew 4, chapter 17. From that time, Jesus began to preach, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. His message was the same. And we see John fulfilling his purpose of calling many in Israel to repentance in preparation for the Messiah that is just right around the corner, literally, at this time, as we'll see next week. John the Baptist is fulfilling. He is the fulfillment of God's prophecy. When God prophesied and, and foretold that he would restore Israel that had been scattered throughout the land because of God's judgment on them. He's, where Matthew is quoting Isaiah 40 and describing John the Baptist where he says, Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. A voice cries, in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Similar to the way that, that um, the Secret Service might make way for the president. The idea here is making way for the king to return with the people of Israel back to Jerusalem. Making straight the paths would be go, go through every single step, every single foot between here and there and, and get the big rocks out of the way. And, and if maybe there's a valley that's too deep, we'll just chop down one of the mountains and fill the valley with it. Because the king is coming. That's the idea here of preparing the way. John fulfilled the prophecy of Isaiah in an unexpected way. Rather than calling Israel from being scattered back to their land. He called them out of Jerusalem, out of their comfort, out of their self-righteousness, to repentance and confession. Rather than calling for a physical path to be made level out, leveled out for a king's return, he called for their walls of pride to drop, for the king to be able to reign in their hearts in preparation for the coming Messiah. Luke 16, 16 tells us that John was the last, as I said, of the Old Testament prophets. And we'll see in Matthew 11 and 17, Jesus calls John the Baptist the greatest of the prophets. We know from Luke's gospel that he was born to a priest named Zechariah and his wife Elizabeth in their old age, who happened to be cousins with Mary. John the Baptist and Jesus were cousins. And we're told in Luke 1 about John the Baptist, he will be great before the Lord. This is what Zechariah was told about his son that would be born in his old age. 
He was told he must not drink wine or strong drink. And he will be filled with the Holy Spirit, even from his mother's womb. If you recall from the book of Luke, how John, as a, as a fetus, jumped in his mother's womb, hearing the sound of Mary's voice. And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. He will go before him, speaking of Christ, in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just, to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. How would they be prepared? They would be prepared by allowing their hearts to be made fertile ground through confession and repentance. John was also dressed the part of an Old Testament prophet in the style of Elijah as well. We read in verse 4, Now John wore a garment of camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist, and his food was locusts and wild honey. Then Jerusalem and all Judea and all the region about the Jordan were going out to him, and they were baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. John's dress was common of desert dwellers. Basically, a DIY outfit here. It was common among the very poor. His diet was cheap. It was plentiful. And it was kosher, according to the Mosaic Law. He didn't just eat grasshoppers, but it was what the poor ate in the desert. So why is he called John the Baptist? Is it because he wore a three-piece suit and didn't dance and, and uh, <laughs> used, old, used King James when he prayed? No, and... and I know a lot of you guys are Baptist in yourselves, and I'm not making fun. But he's called John the Baptist because he was baptizing people. And this was really controversial about his ministry, that he was baptizing Jews. This is unusual. Baptism was a part, it was in, installed, it was a practice prior to the ministry of John the Baptist. But John calling Jews to repent and be baptized, well, he was basically treating them like non-Jews. You see, in Judaism, the only people that would be fully baptized in this way were non-Jews who wanted to become Jews. They wanted to worship the God of the Old Testament. They wanted to be circumcised, and, and, and they needed to confess their sins attached to their, their Gentile pagan ways, and as a part of this, symbolically, they were baptized into becoming Jews. But for a Jew to be baptized in this way was very unusual. The InterVarsity Press Bible Background Commentary says most Jewish people thought that if they were born into a Jewish family and did not reject God's law, they would be saved. God, God, John told them instead that they had to come to God in the same way that non-Jews did. The point of John's baptism is that everyone has to come to God on the same terms. In confession of their need for salvation. In repentance. So were the people that were baptized by John being saved through their repentance? No. 
we know that John's baptism, for one thing, was a preparation for the Messiah's ministry. It was to help people to get their hearts right for responding to the coming Messiah. And secondly, the reason why John's baptism wasn't intended to save people, we read in Acts 19, where we can read that, that Paul is passing through an inland country, and he came to Ephesus. And there he found some disciples. And he said to them, Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they said, No, we have not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. And he said, Into what, were you ba- th- into what then were you baptized? They said, into John's baptism. And Paul said, John baptized with the baptism of repentance, telling the people to believe in the one who was to come after him, that is Jesus. On hearing this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul had laid his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them, and they began speaking in tongues and prophesying. And part of what we've learned recently in our men's Bible study on Saturday mornings, which everyone, all, all the men, are welcome uh, to be a part of, is, is the act of the, the testimony of speaking in tongues in this way through the book of Acts is God saying, Yes, this people group, this kind of person, this person too can be saved. And so we see that there were men here in Acts 19 who had been baptized into John's baptism and had not heard that they need to also repent and follow Christ. And upon doing so, the signal is given in the book of Acts, these guys got saved too. So this isn't to say that the message of repentance for salvation isn't important. It's simply, no, we simply know that salvation is made available in Christ to those who are repentant. And I apologize for doing all this background material here, but just as John the Baptist is the last of the Old Testament prophets, yet we find him in the New Testament, there's a lot of context going on here. But we will get to our takeaways here. And the points that we want to draw out from this very soon. But another major group of players that are brought into Matthew's account next are the Pharisees and the Sadducees. As we read in verse 7, But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, You brood of vipers who warned you to flee from the wrath to come. Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. And do not presume to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. The fruit he's referring to here is that of repentance. We'll have a pretty uh, plenty of opportunity to learn about these guys over the course of our time in Matthew. They're kind of like these Pharisees and Sadducees, just for now to understand, they're kind of like the Republicans and Democrats of the Jewish religious leaders. Albert Moeller says, when the Pharisees and Sadducees show up together, it's because they have a common enemy. And that was that of John the Baptist. And again, what they're appalled by is that he is baptizing Jews for repentance. Repentance from what? Being Jew? Because... Basically, the idea was that's all they needed. It's clear that they felt that they needed to check this young upstart. 
And we see from John's response that they had a problem of spiritual pride, which he went straight at. We get to the part of John where John speaks of Jesus in verse 11 where he says, I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn. But the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. So we see my Matthew is writing about John the Baptist here. He is the forerunner of the Messiah. The Apostle John wrote um, and introduces him in this way. In John 1, verses 6 through 8, there was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. Speaking of Jesus, he was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. John the Baptist was not the light. He came to bear witness about Jesus who brought the light, who was the light and as John, uh, the Apostle John says of him in John 1, 15, John bore witness about him and cried out, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me. Speaking of Jesus' eternality. John speaks of not being worthy to carry Jesus' sandals. You see, uh, this is because slaves of that day were responsible sometimes for carrying their master's sandals. And John is saying, I am not even worthy to be his slave. So this brings us to what I believe God wants us to take away from our passage. The bad and good news of the gospel. So do you see John introduced the bad news of the good news here? John showed up on the scene saying nothing about you or that you are doing is or will make you good enough for a relationship with God. Nothing. In fact, if if you think that it does, you need to repent of that as well. He's telling them, as I like to say, if we were donuts, we would be sin-covered sinners with sinful filling. As Isaiah says, even our acts of righteousness are like filthy rags before God's righteousness. And the bad news tells you to recognize your sin as rebellion. Rebelling while living in the very kingdom of God. He came preaching in the wilderness of Judea. Repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. And and in response to this, the people were confessing their sins. Repent means to turn away from what's wrong and to also turn to what is right. It's kind of a double move. To confess means to agree with. To confess one's sins means to tell God the wrong that you've done and to agree that it is wrong and that it should not be there in your life. And the reason for repenting that he's given is that the kingdom of God is at hand. We're going to have a lot of opportunity to understand the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven. 
in the Gospel of Matthew. God's kingdom is where his authority is not questioned or should not be questioned and where his will should be done. And it's everywhere. You know, like misbehaving students being warned that the teacher is back in the room, right? That kid that's dancing on his desk and the other students are going, knock it off, she's right behind you. We're warned that God's reign is now. And he expects to be obeyed now. When the Nazis occupied France, there were French men and women that helped them. They were willing to turn against their countrymen, probably convinced that the Nazis were there to stay. But when the Allies liberated France, those who helped the Nazis woke up and found themselves to be enemies of the state. And the sins that separate you from God prior to your salvation made you God's enemy. And you lived in open rebellion to the one that rules every piece of ground that you could walk on. And people are still called to repent. For the kingdom of God, heaven, the kingdom of God is at hand in Christ. The territory of Christ's reign has been established everywhere that you could be. The laws of God's reign have been clearly communicated. Disobedience is not accepted. And this is the bad news of the gospel. We're all wrong with God everywhere we go. That's the call to repent. Because the kingdom of God is at hand. It's where? Wherever you are. That's the bad news of the gospel that we need to accept if we are to be truly saved, that our neighbors need to accept if they are to be truly saved. And just as we must stop living in rebellion against God and his kingdom and to repent of that if we are to be saved, we must stop insulting God with our self-righteousness. This is what he, he is, is speaking to these Pharisees and Sadducees about. You know, anyone who lives in the wilderness is no friend of snakes. And John tells the religious leader that they're basically poisonous because of their self-righteousness. And their self-righteousness was based on them thinking, because I'm born into the Jewish nation, because I'm born into this family, and of course, look how righteous I am because of the position that I hold. It only piled on their self-righteousness, which is an insult to God's righteousness. And it seems like a picture to me of a bunch of snakes uh, feverishly trying to escape a forest fire. When he says, you brood of vipers, who told you to escape the coming wrath? Most Jews would have expected the fact of their being Jewish meant that they had an in with God. But John the Baptist informs them that they are a dime a dozen. That God could just make more worshipers if he wanted to. Being a member of the nation of Israel didn't protect anyone from the penalty of their sin. The tree that didn't produce good fruit would be cut down and burned. And the people with no fruit of repentance will eventually be cast into the fire 
as penalty. This is the bad news of the gospel. Have you ever met anyone who's, who's accomplished something or gone through something like nobody else you've ever met? You know, like, like maybe they're the sole survivor of a shipwreck who, was, who uh, dog paddled out on the open seas for a month before they were rescued. And you're kind of trying to identify with them in the conversation and you say something like, yeah, I had a flat tire once out on this country road. It took like an hour for anybody to drive by. Or maybe they're a friend who completed an Ironman race, which is a, a marathon, 26 miles of running, combined with, in the same day, riding a bike for 112 miles, and also swimming two and a half miles. And you're like, well, I think I did something like that with my cabin at summer camp, and we won. <laughs> it's kind of insulting, right? They're kind of like, no, it's not like that at all. <laughs> to know what God has said in his word and to think, yeah, but he hasn't met me yet, is insulting to him. Our self-righteousness is insulting to God's righteousness. To read Romans 3, verses 10 through 12 to be reminded, none is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good. Not even one. But then to think, but I bet I could impress him, is ridiculous. It's an insult to his righteousness. It's just as the Jewish New Testament commentary says this, just as God's physical law of gravity makes it certain that the automatic consequences of jumping from a tall building is physical destruction, so God's moral law of sin makes it certain that the automatic consequences of persisting in sin is eternal spiritual destruction in God's wrath. Hear that again. Just as God's physical law of gravity makes it certain that the automatic consequences of jumping from a tall building is physical destruction, so God's moral law of sin makes it certain that the automatic consequences of persisting in sin is eternal spiritual destruction in God's wrath. John is being clear. Without the fruit of repentance, preparing their hearts, for the coming Messiah, and then receiving that Messiah as their Savior. They were good for nothing to God. That, that sounds harsh, but this is what he says over and over again about these branches that are good for nothing but to be thrown into the fire. Or, or this, this husk or, or chaff of the grain that is good for nothing except to be gathered up and thrown into the fire. He's being clear. But I want to share with you. I want to encourage you to write this down if you have a pen. A statement that I heard recently that is so true. To be clear is to be kind. To be clear is to be kind. No amount of church attendance covers the penalty of your sin. I'm being kind here. By being clear. No amount of church attendance 
will cover the penalty of your sin. No amount of confession makes up for your sin. No amount of Christian family members amounts to inheriting a relationship with God. Hear me. If you are living in a completely unrepentant life, my conclusion is you must not have the Holy Spirit. And if you don't have the Holy Spirit indwelling you, it is because you don't have a relationship with God. And if you aren't a redeemed child of God, the next event on God's timetable is the rapture. This is how real that is, okay? If you do not have a relationship with God through Christ, what, what, what John the Baptist in his ministry was trying to prepare these people for, it could happen even before this message is over. That those of us who know Christ as our Savior will be gone. That every pickup truck and tractor trailer and airplane that's being flown by a person who has a relationship with God will fall from the sky or crash into whatever it's heading toward. It will be chaos. But the greatest tragedy will be, I believe, as Revelation describes it, as the Holy Spirit will be removed from this earth, your opportunity for salvation will be over. How devastating will that be? I'm not talking about something theoretical, folks. I'm talking about what could happen in the next moment. If you do not have a relationship with God as your Savior, you must receive Him as your Savior and Lord because of the work that He has done in His death on the cross and in His resurrection. If you haven't noticed, this sermon is taking the tone of John the Baptist. So far we've seen the bad news of the gospel. But we do get to some good news here. Yield to King Justice, yield to King Jesus or to judgment. You're like, JD, that wasn't a big snippet of good news there. Well, John, that's what we're with here in our passage. He tells him, I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. And fire. His winnowing fork, is, which is the, what was used on the threshing floor to remove the chaff from the grain. His winnowing fork is in his hand. And he will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn. Speaking of those who have trusted Christ as their Savior. But the chaff, he will burn with unquenchable fire. The good news here is that King Jesus will baptize with more than just water for repentance, but he will baptize with the Holy Spirit. John gave the opportunity for people to repent and to let their heart be fertile ground for salvation. This opportunity for repentance was preparation for the good news of the gospel that would come with Jesus' death and resurrection. And the pardon for our rebellion can only be paid by the life and death of Christ, the Son of God. 
And salvation means being transferred from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of God. And his salvation is accompanied by a baptism of the Holy Spirit with which the Holy Spirit baptizes the believer into Christ. And this saving moment is described in Ephesians 1 verse 13 where he writes, the Apostle Paul writes, In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. You could say amen to that. And the clothing of God's kingdom has been outlined. It's the cloak of Christ's righteousness. But there's another baptism that Jesus brings with him. One of fire. Twice we're told in our passage about objects that are useless to the farmer. The limbs of a tree that does not bear fruit. Which John re- connects to the fruit of repentance. Chaff or the husk that is separated from grain when a farmer threshes it with his winnowing fork. Both of these are described as being burned in the end. And thus the baptism of fire that Jesus will bring is one of judgment on those who live in his kingdom but have not bent their knee to his gospel. You know, there's a lot of instances in our culture of people being unkind by being unclear. We call them backhanded compliments, right? Uh, there's a way that we Southerners, you know, I grew up in Tennessee, there's a way, and I'm sure you're familiar with this, that, that we say, you're so dumb, I pity you. And it says, it's by saying, oh, bless your heart. They really mean, you're so dumb, I pity you. I had a friend that worked at Hobby Lobby, and uh, she said that, you know, they have a saying when somebody brings something through the checkout, and it's like, That's, that thing is hideous. Who would ever buy that? They say, oh, that's unique. (laughs) It's a backhanded compliment. Sounds like they're complimenting you, but they're really not. By being unclear, it's hiding the fact that they're being unkind. To be clear is to be kind. John the Baptist is being kind. Those who are dead in their sins are stuck in helpless rebellion. And the person who thinks that they are righteous enough for God to accept them have nothing but rebellious self-righteousness to show him. And rather than knowing Jesus as their Savior, they will face him as their judge. The majority of what we know of Christ in Scripture is not the meek and mild man that walked this earth. But the angel of the Lord of the Old Testament. And the one who will come riding on a white horse whose robe is dripped in blood who will judge the nations. But I will look at him as my Savior. 
And I know that most of you will look at him as your savior because you looked at yourself and you recognized, I ain't pretty. My sin is not pretty. My sin is an offense to God's righteousness. But praise God that he gave me his son to be my savior. And that God doesn't have to look for my righteousness because I've received Christ as my savior in my confession of my need for him. And when God looks at me, he sees the righteousness of Christ. And that is the only way that I am able to stand before him. And this is what the ministry of John was to prepare them for. His ministry was more about bringing the bad news than the good news. Have you faced the bad news? That you are a sinner and in the need of God's grace through Christ. I pray that you will. It's, not, it's only by accepting the bad news that you will believe in God's forgiveness. And then in that forgiveness, it is like a sweet, sweet honey on your lips. It's like the sound of a beautiful symphony to your ears. It's like refreshing holy water on your skin. Let's pray and then we'll sing about that. Father God, these are my friends. These are my family. Lord, if, if they knew about me what you know about me, they wouldn't want to listen to me. If I knew about them what you know about them, I wouldn't want to talk to them. But thank you, Lord God, that we can see each other in the righteousness of Christ. That we can see each other as ones that were, whose sins were paid for. That we can look on those that have even sinned against us and recognize those sins were paid for by my Savior. And Lord, we can walk in a trusting relationship with you where we don't have to worry about whether our sins will mean our eternal destruction. Because Jesus went through hell for us. Lord, allow us to celebrate your salvation. And any of those here that are not sure that they could celebrate that, I pray, Lord God, that they would open their hearts to you. That they would repent of their self-righteousness. They would receive your grace through the person and work of Jesus alone. Lord, I pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.